My name is Christian. I'm one of the elders here at Cornerstone. I get the opportunity to open up God's Word with you. If you're new to Cornerstone, we're so glad to have you with us. Um, we are in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, this quintessential teaching of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. We're in the middle of chapter 6 right now, so if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open up there. If you need a Bible, we got some ushers that would love to put one in your hands. We would love for this to be our gift to you if, if it will be useful to you. But as we get going, I guess I just want to stop and reflect on the song that we were just singing together before I came up here. Um, it's interesting, oftentimes the, the songs that we sing as a church rightly are directed to God. They are ways in which we are declaring to him who he is to us. I don't know if you notice in that song, it was actually flipped around the other way. This is actually a song we sang to one another. Do you realize that? And that's actually a biblical thing to do. Ephesians 6, talk, or 5, talks about this idea that we are, as we gather together as a church, to address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So whether you realize it or not, you were talking to one another. We were talking to one another. We, so he sang that song, seeking God's blessing and favor, not commanding it. We do not command God to bless one another, but we desire that for each other, do we not? And if you remember here in the Sermon on the Mount, the, way, the very first word of this sermon is blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. That's what this sermon has been all about. This idea of what does it mean to live as a citizen of God's kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, in the midst of the kingdoms of this world. And keep those two ideas together that we see at the very beginning of the sermon. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Got to seek God's blessing apart from his kingdom is empty and meaningless. To seek good things from God without seeking the goodness of God's rule, his authority over you is to get it backwards and to miss it altogether. The blessedness that we desire for one another, that we desire for ourselves is found under the rule of this good king, amen? And our Savior is instructing us here in this sermon. Here's what it means within the kingdoms of this world with all of their imperfections. Here's the way in which we are called to live differently with a different king. One who was and is and is to come. But live in a way that is obvious and noticeable to those around us that they may see the goodness of our king. What Jesus talked about being salt and light. They might see the reality of the goodness of God's rule and glorify our father in heaven. Now, I don't know if you've been counting, but this week I believe is week 11 in our series through the Sermon on the Mount. We started back in the beginning of November just by reading through this sermon together. And I don't know about you, I am so glad we've taken our time with it. I, I want to savor the words of Jesus in this sermon because I want them to change me. I want to be discipled by Jesus to become like Jesus. Do you want that? Then in that case, what I would say is this. The transformation, the change to become like Jesus that we all ought to desire as followers of Jesus comes not only as we hear Jesus' words and not even as we savor them and value them, but as we do them, 
as we put them into practice. That's the way. I'm going to give you a, tea, a, a, a spoiler for the way that Jesus is going to end this sermon in Matthew chapter 6. At the very end of it, he says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them is like the wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain, the wind, the floods came, the trials and tribulations of life come on us just as they come on everyone. And yet there is a stability. Christ is our firm foundation. He cannot be moved. Not even death can stop our king, amen? On the other hand, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them, you're building your house on sand. The same winds and floods will come and you will not stand. So the question I wanna pause and consider as we get started this morning is this. What are you doing with what you've heard so far? Over the last three months as we've been working through this sermon, in what ways have you been challenged to obey Jesus, to trust Jesus? What things have been exposed where there is the need for growth and what are you doing about those things? We've covered a lot of ground in this sermon already from those beatitudes describing this blessed life to what Jesus talks about in chapter five, that he came to fulfill the law by contrasting what people had heard about what God wanted versus what he said, right? To what we saw in the beginning of chapter six with this idea, be careful to, that you're not doing good things to be seen by others because then you squander it. You have no reward from your father who's in heaven. So ask yourself, even as we get in deeper to this idea of reward or treasure to be sought from our father in heaven, not just what do you want to remember or think about, what does God calling you to do with what you hear today? We're gonna to pick up in chapter six, verse 19, and it says this. Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Verse 22, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Father in heaven, as we look to your word, would you guide us? Would you open our eyes? Would you soften our hearts? Would you sober us? Would you convict us where we need it? Would you encourage us when, when, where we need it? Lord, we want to be faithful disciples who not only hear from you, but we walk with you. We follow you. We are transformed by you. So would you use your powerful word, would you, you through the spirit whom you've given to transform us? Would you have your way in us? We seek not our will, but your will be done in our lives this day, in this time, in this place, as it is in heaven. We ask this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. All right, as we consider this section, 
as we dive into verses 19 through 24, as you can see, there's kind of like Jesus gives us these three short statements. If you're familiar with the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament, it kind of reads like that, doesn't it? It almost reads like a collection of these wise saying that Jesus gives us. And the reality is I could take all day this morning on any one of those. But what I want to do is I want to hold the three of them together because I don't think Jesus is collecting just wise things. I think there, he has a purpose in stringing these three statements together within this sermon. So let's look at them together, even if it means we'll have to do it a little bit more briefly. I can, here's what I kind of want to do this morning. I'm going to kind of just teach through the passage first because there's a lot of metaphors, word pictures, some that might be more familiar or less familiar to us. And then we'll come back at the end and, and maybe think more applicationally, what do we do with this? And just to be honest with you from the front end, uh, this is a passage that I feel like I've been surprised how challenging it's been, how humbling it's been to study this one. I'm realizing there's a lot more work that I have to do. Sometimes as a preacher, you get to preach on a passage where you just feel like maybe there's more experience. God's done a work in your life in that area. You have more to speak on in terms of here's how God's formed me in these areas. Other times you come across a passage like this one's been for me where it's like, yeah, I'm in kindergarten on this one. I, I wanna share what I see so far, some of the questions, the things I'm wrestling with in my own heart, but do not think that myself or Todd or whoever we ever teach from a position of arrival, even if we think we're teaching from a position of arrival, we are lifelong learners in this school of discipleship with Jesus, amen? So let's look at the first one together. Again, verse 19, where Jesus says, do not lay up treasure on earth, but instead lay up treasure in heaven. It should be pretty clear to us how what Jesus says here in this first one is connected to everything that he said in verses 1 through 18. Don't practice your righteousness before people to be seen by them because then you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. And here he's kind of, he's, he's adding another dimension to that argument of showing us, here's why you want reward from God. Don't settle for the cheap rewards of what you get here on earth. What God has is so much better. He's giving us further motivation because he says, earthly rewards, they don't last. They don't stick around. Material possessions, money, praise, reputation, all of it, it doesn't last. The first thing Jesus talks about there is this idea that, that moths or rust destroy them. Think about a moth that gets into your closet and eats your wool coat or something like that. I know we got mothballs that don't smell very good, but they can help in that situation. But again, he's talking about at a time when clothes were handmade and expensive and people wouldn't have more than a pair or two of outfits, this was a huge thing. Moths were a, a, a big problem, right? The way that rust can deteriorate metal, make it break down and fall apart. We were talking about this in the, the pre-service that we do with children's workers where one guy was saying, man, the hardest substances, what were seen as the most durable substances, metal and such for, so forth, even that doesn't last. It breaks down. Thieves can come in and destroy it. Jesus, in this metaphor, of, uh, he's talking about very specific, tangible things, right? Like clothing and metal and things that can be taken and, and stolen. And we can relate that to very tangible things in our day, the way the things can break down, fall apart, right after the warranty period ends, it falls apart, right? Or the way that even if you think about it just in terms of money, the way that inf inflation, as we see right now, just erodes the value of our money. The, the amount in your bank account might stay the same. It might even get bigger, but it's worth less. 
It doesn't endure. It doesn't remain. It can be taken. But he's not only talking about physical things here. Because again, what, what has he been warning us about all throughout chapter 6 up to this point? Not just money or clothing or metal, but the praise of people. Reputation. Status. Influence. Building a name for yourself, your brand. We see stories every day in the news of people who maybe they've built a strong reputation for years and then they destroy it with one unwise tweet. Or if people dig up things they did way years ago when they were younger and it all falls apart. It's very fragile and fleeting. That treasure might be in the form of like physical beauty or fitness and we know, we should know, I hope we know that that does not last. No matter how many uh, special creams you buy, no matter how well even you, you, you faithfully seek to steward your body with healthy diet and exercise, you know that you are only injury, illness, or age away from that falling apart. It will not last. Intelligence, knowledge, achievements in the, in the realm of academia or, or, or the, the, the accomplishments in the workplace. We know that that won't last either. In other words, to build your life, your security, your sense of stability on stuff that is inherently unstable and not lasting is to build your house on sand, right? In contrast to that, Jesus says, treasure in heaven ain't like that. I don't know if it means there's no moths in heaven or they just don't eat clothes, but he says moth and rust don't destroy. Thieves won't break in and steal. It's secure, it's stable, it endures, it lasts. But we have to be careful not to just think of treasure in heaven as just somehow a better version of stuff we have on earth. Sometimes that sticks around in our head, even from like ancient Greek philosophy with Plato, that, that you might have a chair here on earth, but there's an ideal chair up in the heavens. That's the better version of it. You might like going surfing on earth, but bro, the waves in heaven, perfect every, like we can, we can cheapen it in some way of just thinking of heaven as just this idealized sense of the material stuff we have here on earth. And this is where we have to be careful because if Jesus is talking about this idea of treasure in heaven, I would say the idea of treasure isn't first and foremost about the stuff itself or where the stuff is stored. It's talking about what we value what's important to us, what we see as worthwhile. And we get a sense that in some ways value, treasure is relative. We have a very common saying in our culture where we say that one man's trash is another man's treasure or that beauty is in the eye of the beholder. One person may think something's worthless and someone else goes, are you kidding me? You don't realize what you have, but I do, right? Treasure is in some ways relative. It's, it's determined based upon what you think is important, what you think is valuable. And ultimately, Jesus' point is that it's not just about what you think is valuable or those around you think is valuable that you need to compete with. It's the degree to which your sense of value lines up with God's sense of what values, what matters. That's what it is to have your treasure rightly aligned. Because as Jesus says here, our hearts inevitably attach to what we value. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart will go. 
Our desires, our will, our emotions are trained by and attached to what we think is most important and worthwhile in life. It's, it's got to be that way. It's part of how God made us. The problem is we value the wrong things. So that's the first one. Jesus says, seek reward from your Father in heaven because who he is and what he values and what he gives to those who seek him is better and more durable and lasting than what we can get for ourselves or what anyone else on this earth can give us, right? Let's look at the second one. This one might be a little bit less clear to us. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. What does that mean? This has actually puzzled people throughout church history. What is Jesus talking about here? Because in some ways it's a little bit more abstract or at least it's more foreign. It's not a typical way that we talk. And I, th I would say there's probably three ways that we could take this. I think they fit together. I don't think they're contradictory. We don't have to pick one of them. But maybe the first one to give us an introduction to what I think Jesus is talking about here is just think about it really literally. Why do we, put, why do we turn lights on in a dark room? So we can see, we can see what's in there. We can see where we need to go. We can find out if, you know, my wife got back from being out of town. And so her suitcase was still on the floor of the, the, the bedroom and I didn't realize it this morning. So as I was walking across the room in the dark, I did not see the suitcase that I tripped over. Had the light been on, I would have seen and known how to navigate my body around it, right? So I think Jesus just very literally is saying in the same way that a light or a lamp gives light to our eyes so we can see what's going on, our eyes serve, for, serve that same function for our bodies. We navigate the world in which we live largely based upon what we see. We talk about this in sports, like the idea of eye-hand coordination. Or I remember like when my kids were little and they'd be riding the little tricycle or whatever around in the backyard, it, it struck me how unnatural it is to stay focused on looking where you're going little kids, they go, oh, what's that boom right into the, like, the pillar of the patio roof or something like that? And so what would my wife and I say? Watch where you're going. Watch where you're going. Direct your body based upon what your eyes see. So in one sense, Jesus is saying, if you can't see clearly or you can't see at all, your ability to navigate your body through the physical space in which you are is going to be hampered. Now, it's remarkable because you can see people who are blind either from birth or through injury. And it's amazing the way God's made our minds, our brains to work, that, 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 that other senses can pick up some of the slack, right? Sense of hearing, sense of touch. But generally speaking, the clarity, the quality of your eyesight determines to a large part your ability to use the rest of your body well, right? So in some ways, Jesus is saying if you can't see, you're, if your eyes are in the dark, your whole body's in the dark, right? Even if there's light all around you. But there's another level that's probably pretty apparent when we look at this, because we also see throughout the Bible that these ideas of light and darkness are often used as metaphors for good and evil. Star Wars picked up on that. There's the light side of the force and the dark side of the force, right? It's kind of natural to us. We have a sense that there is something good about being in light, and there is something at least misleading, if not sinister, about darkness. The way that John puts it in 1 John 1, he says that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. That doesn't mean literal light because before there was literal light, God was there, right? 
But he goes on and he says, if we say that we are in the light while we walk in darkness, we're deceiving ourselves. He's using that moral sense of light referring to good and evil. And so there is also a sense in what Jesus is saying here. He's saying this, if you are using your God-given gift of sight to gaze at that which is evil or to direct your body to do that which is evil, you are abusing your God-given gift of sight and you need to turn to repent. But there's another level to this. Here's what's interesting. The word back in, uh, that we see there, that word healthy, where he says, so if your eye is healthy, it actually could be translated with a number of different words. It could be saying, if your eye is single or simple or sincere, if you have an old King James Bible with the these and the vowels and stuff, you might see that. If your eye is single, what does that mean? I think it's the difference between uh, seeing one thing and having double vision. Can you see clearly? I was also thinking about, um, you ever see those pictures of like a chameleon or birds or things like that that have their eyes on the side of their head and they can look all over the place? Like they literally can't look at one thing because they can't bring their eyes around this way. All they can see is everything all around them. That's kind of remarkable. It seems like that's one of the ways that God has designed more prey versus predators in the, in the animal world. Predators have their eyes here. They can see forward. Prey need to see all around because they don't so much need to see forward. They need to see where the predator's coming from and get out of there, right? I think there's a sense in which Jesus is talking about something like that. If you're trying to look in two directions at the same time, guess what? You can't move in two different directions at the same time. You either won't go anywhere or you'll go in circles. If you do not have singular focus, the right object, the right destination in focus, you will not be able to move in a consistent way toward that destination. D.A. Carson put it this way. He said, the good eye, the health, healthy eye that Jesus is talking about here is focused, is, is the one that's fixed on God, unwavering in its gaze, constant in its fixation. This is how this one builds onto what Jesus just said about treasure in heaven. Not only is treasure in heaven better, more lasting, you want it, you want your focus there. But if you try to do both, if you try to seek both treasure, value in heaven and value on earth, if you try to live for God's kingdom and your own kingdom, you won't do it. You won't do it well. You're spinning your wheels, you're going in circles. You need singular focus on God and his kingdom. That's the only way to see clearly to move in a worthwhile direction in your life. And then with the third one that Jesus gives us, he says this, it's almost like he takes up the ante. If in the first one, Jesus is giving us encouragement, the treasure in heaven, treasure with God, the things that God values are better, and then the second one, he's giving us guidance, you can't head in two directions at once, you need singular focus. With this one, he gives us an ultimatum. You can't have it both ways. You can't have it both ways. You cannot serve two masters. You'll either be devoted to the one and despise the other. You'll love one, you'll hate the other. You cannot serve two masters. Now, if we stop and think about this one, honestly, it should unsettle us a little bit. Because what's the metaphor, the word picture that Jesus is using here? 
to serve a master in slavery. He's, descri he's describing the relationship that we ought to have with God and we ought not to have with our stuff in terms of a master-slave relationship. Now, go with me for a second because, I mean, the reality is we don't have time this morning to unpack all that the Bible says about slavery. But it is clear as we look at the whole testimony of Scripture from beginning to end that slavery, the enslavement of one person by another person is not God's intention for human relationships even though it's been prevalent throughout all cultures, even ours this day, as Shannon was talking about a minute ago. And slavery is one of those things that Jesus came to confront and redeem and eradicate from the new creation that's yet to come. Don't get that mixed up. He's not condoning slavery here. But what he is doing is, is he's speaking about it this way. The relationship that a master has over a slave is one of absolute authority. And the relationship that a slave is meant to have with their master is one of absolute obedience and allegiance. And Jesus is saying that that is the relationship that we have with our heavenly father. He is our father. He loves us. He cares for us. But he is also king of kings and lord of lords who has all power and all authority forever and ever. Amen. So again, we do not dictate terms to him. He is not our spiritual advisor here to help us on our path. He is the king of the kingdom and he says, come follow me. But you can't have it both ways. You can't serve two masters. Now look for a second at the two masters that Jesus specifies here in this passage. God and money. You may be familiar with this. The, the idea behind the word money is this, this, uh, this word mammon. Mammon, which is just, it, it encompasses the idea of money, but it's much bigger than that. It encompasses this whole realm of possessions, things that are worthwhile, things that we uh, have and want to use and assign value to, riches, possessions, stuff. We also have to stop and think about this for a second, because he also says, he's also not saying that you can't have stuff or use money, possessions, and so forth. But what he does say is this, you can't be mastered by them. You cannot be one of my disciples and be mastered by, give your allegiance to your riches, your possession, your money here on earth. Because if you do, you will be unfaithful. Not just unfaithful, look at the words he uses there. You will despise God. You will hate him. You cannot serve two masters. Sinclair Ferguson, as he was commenting on this section, he says, make sure we don't miss the obvious implication of what Jesus is saying here. You and I were made to have a master. We were made to have a king with absolute authority over us. Notice the option Jesus doesn't give us here. He doesn't say you cannot serve God or yourself. He does not give us the option to be our own masters, the captain of our own ship, the master of our own fate. There's a song by Bob Dylan during a period of time when it seems like he was seeking to follow Jesus called, You Gotta Serve Somebody. It might be the devil, it might be the Lord. You could be the richest guy, you could be the poorest guy, but you have to serve, you're gonna serve somebody. You're gonna have to serve somebody. And Jesus' point here is to say, make sure it's the right master. 
Make sure it's the right master. Give God your first and ultimate allegiance. Give him your devotion. If there's any time between what you value on earth and God's things are in conflict, make sure he wins. Make sure of it. Now, unless you stop and you think this is just too heavy-handed and authoritarian, let me give you a teaser to what Jesus is going to talk about a few chapters later in chapter 11 when he says this, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You will find refreshment for your soul. He says, take my yoke upon you, which was a way of referring to like what an ox would carry that would strap it to the, the cart so it could move forward. It was a way that was often referred to the rule or the authority of a king. Jesus is saying, I'm king and I'm calling you to come under my rule, but my rule will not mistreat you, will not abuse you, will not take advantage of you. You will find rest under me as king but you will not find that rest if you come to Jesus as advisor, as genie to grant your wishes, to help you on your way. You cannot serve two masters. What about the Lord? You say, don't serve mammon. Don't serve possessions and things like that. But what about the stuff we need? Because there's a certain amount of possessions and stuff that we just need to navigate life. Well, again, that's what we're going to see very next in the very next part of chapter 6, what Todd's going to take us through next week. It's like Jesus anticipates his people's question. And here's what he says. Don't worry about what you're going to eat and drink and wear. You know why? Your heavenly father cares for you. He knows what you need. He takes care of the birds of the air and the grass of the field. And you are more valuable to him than that. So don't worry. Instead, seek first God's kingdom and righteousness and all that stuff will be added to you as well. That's where we're going next week. But what I wanna do in the last couple minutes this morning is this. Pull all that together from you want treasure in heaven to you have to have a singular focus to you can't have it both ways. How do we do this? How do we seek God's kingdom and righteousness first? How do we store up treasure in heaven, set our singular focus on God, serve him as king, and then rightly relate to the stuff that we have? Well, again, like I said before, this is that place where I go, I got homework to do with the Lord. And not just me and Jesus, but in conversation with other trusted brothers and sisters, as I'm sure you do as well. This is not a simple light switch. I, that's one of the things that was most on my heart as I was prepping, even just finishing up my preparation this morning. I don't want to just give you pithy little checklist kind of things that you could do to set up treasure in heaven. Just give more, support more missionaries, come to church more often. All of those things are good. And they're definitely part of this equation. But remember what this whole section of the Sermon on the Mount is about. Not just what we do, but why. What is our motivation? What are we after? What's the value? What's, as one writer put it, what's the work behind our work? Not just what we do, but what we're striving for in what we do. Whose reward, approval, praise are we looking for? So again, when we think about, at least first, this idea of storing up treasure in heaven, it's not just a balance transfer. It's not just I want to move what I have in this account to this account, from an earthly bank to a heavenly bank. It's not that. It goes much deeper than that. 
Treasure is about what we value, what we aim for, what we see as worthwhile, worth pursuing, working toward, sacrificing other things for. So what I want to do is just give you a few uh, of the statements, questions that I'm wrestling with in my own life. Again, not from a place of arrival by any means. But just in some ways, hey, this is what I'm wrestling with. And as our church family, would you join me in this? I want to share a few of these things. Some might be more relevant to you. Some might be clearer to you. Because I would honestly say some of these questions or thoughts are more clear to me than others. Which is why I feel like I have more work to do here. But let me start with this one for you. It's this idea. Jesus says there at the end of uh, verse 21, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And here's the thought at least that I started with. My heart's already attached to what I treasure. It's already committed, right? You're not the venture capitalist who's awash with cash and just going, where do I put it? Jesus is saying, you've already put it somewhere. You've already invested your energy, your emotions your passion, your time, your resources in some things. Do you know what they are? Your heart is not a blank slate. It's already committed. But, we'll come back to this more at the end as well, our hearts can be trained. Our hearts can be trained from what we treasure right now to what we ought to treasure. So what are you investing your time, your energy, resources, affections in? I remember back when I was uh, growing up, what I would often hear preachers say is, if you want to know where your treasure is, look at your checkbook register. Does anybody still use a checkbook register? So I can't use that one. Anymore. Oh, yeah, they, but the accountants. Yes, they do. Absolutely, they do. Maybe now what we have to do is go online because they won't send us our statements anymore. We have to get them online. Find out. Oh, and look. Where is my resources going? What do I treasure? What am I spending, regularly spending time and money on? That's what you see as worthwhile. It is, because that's where you're already putting your worth. What are the things that you wish you had time for, but you just haven't gotten around to making time for it? You don't value it as much. Other things have seemed more necessary or worthwhile. What are you planning for or saving for or striving for? Those are good places to start to get clarity on where, what is our heart already connected to? Where is our treasure right now? Here's one I need to do more homework on. When I'm discouraged or stressed out, or when I, you know, as we often say, have a bad case of the Mondays, how do I get through this week? What do you turn to? When you're lacking motivation, what do you turn to to motivate you? Is that Loverboy song from the 80s true? Are we all just working for the weekend? <laughs> Saturday's coming. Saturday, just get past hump day and then we'll, we'll be halfway there. Are you just working for the time when you're not working? Do you motivate yourself that, okay, another three weeks and that vacation's coming? Or another three months and I'll pay off the last vacation that we took? <laughs> Is it the next promotion? The new job, I'm this close to retirement. And inevitably you get to whatever that next goal is that you're motivating yourself toward. And what's the very next question you ask? Now what? I got to what I thought the goal was and I'm not done. What do I do now? 
what am I doing right now? What am I motivating, investing time and energy into that will still matter 10,000 years from now? That was just the, the number that was in my head. I was thinking about that, that, that verse from Amazing Grace. When we've been there 10,000 years, what will I still care about 10,000 years from now in God's presence surrounded by our, our family from every tribe and tongue and language and nation? What of what I'm filling my time with right now will still matter then? I came across a quote this week from Adoniram Judson. He was the first American missionary, kind of sent by like an organized American mission society from the U.S. to a country called Burma at the time, what we now call Myanmar. And in his journal, he wrote this, just of the way that he was thinking about what mattered in life. He said, life is short. Happiness consists not in outward circumstances, Millions of Burmans are perishing and I am almost the only person on earth who has attained their language to such a degree as to communicate the way of salvation. He had made an investment in learning that language and he goes, I need to use this well. How great are my obligations to spend and be spent for Christ. What a privilege to be allowed to serve him and suffer for him. And then get this. Soon we shall be in heaven. We only have this life, right? And yet he says, Oh, let us live as we shall then wish we had done. I want to be motivated now by the way I will wish I had lived when I stand in God's presence. How often does that factor into your daily scheduling, your quarterly budgeting, or whatever else it might be? What of this do I know for sure that I will stand before God one day and he will say, well done. You were faithful with the little that I entrusted you with. Now I will entrust you with much. Now, again, anytime you share a quote from a missionary, it's easy even to get in your minds that all I'm talking about is people who do full-time ministry, missionaries, pastors, and so forth. And on the one hand, any young people in here who aren't committed into a career yet, or any of you wondering if you're in the right career, I will be the last person to discourage you from pursuing full-time ministry. I love it. It's what God has called me to do with my life, and I love it. But this is less about what you do full-time for your career as what you're after. What's the work behind your work? His motivation, let us live today as we shall wish we had done then when we stand before God. Consider that with me. Here's the second one I want to give you. Treasure in heaven is less about where or when than who and why. Again, this is something I'm wrestling through in my own head, but let me see if I can explain what I've seen thus far. Sometimes when we think treasure in heaven versus on earth, we can just think about different places. I just wanna store it up there, wherever there is and whatever it looks like. Or we can just think about it as a future reality that is yet to come. But what I wanna remind you, although those, there's realities to both of those dimensions, think about the way throughout the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus usually uses this word heaven. Throughout chapter six, every time he uses the word heaven, it's in relation to who? Our Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven. Or he uses it in reference to this idea of the kingdom of heaven, of God's good rule. 
So when Jesus says store up treasure in heaven, the first idea in mind is who's there? Who is the one of supreme value in heaven? The one who we were just singing, the angels cry, holy, holy, holy. What is the treasure in heaven? It is God. He is the treasure. He's the one whose approval we're seeking. Every, the way, I love the way that James puts it. Every good and perfect gift comes from our Father in heaven. Right now in this time of life, as we're still wrestling with these twisted emotions and these disordered loves, we often have a, a touchy relationship as we think about God and his gifts. We get them confused. We think of God as a means to getting stuff from him. Or sometimes we can enjoy the blessing that God has given us while missing him as the giver. I think one of the hopes of new creation when we are perfected and all of creation is perfected is that we won't have that wrestle anymore. We will perfectly enjoy God as the giver and his gifts without getting it wrong. I think that is a very good thing. So the treasure that Jesus is calling us to seek here is not just the stuff that God gives, it is God himself. Like he said to, to Abraham, don't be afraid, Abraham. I am your shield and I am your very great reward. He is the reward. When we think about this idea of storing up treasure in heaven, what we've seen throughout this sermon, this idea of the kingdom of heaven is not only something future that we're waiting for, that Jesus taught us to pray would come on earth as it is in heaven, but even that right there is a present reality. Lord, would you teach me to live under your good rule that the goodness of who you are would be expressed through my life to those around me that they might see the treasure, the value of God's kingdom. What Jesus will say later on in Matthew 13, he describes the kingdom of heaven itself as a treasure, a treasure that a guy found in a field. It's almost as though he's walking through a field do 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 just kind of going about his day and trips over something, realizes it is a, a treasure beyond all of his reckoning and goes, everything that I have doesn't even compare to this. I would gladly sell everything that I have to have this. Does your relationship with Jesus, the way that you live around your unbelieving family members and coworkers, does it display the treasure that you found in Jesus? the worthiness of who he is. Let me give you one more. I think a huge idea of this stuff of not just serving one, or we can't serve two masters. How do we relate to our stuff? How do we relate to God? I think is this idea of learning to discern the difference between a treasure and a tool. Just think about those two concepts for a second. As we've talked about, this idea of treasure is less about the stuff or like some, some, some sandy box that pirates found on a beach that's got like gold and jewels in it. It's what we value, what we see as significant and worthwhile. And a tool, on the other hand, is something that we use to pursue what we value, to help us in that quest for what we're really after. So stop and think about those two words, treasure and tool. What is the current state of my relationship to my stuff, that mammon, wealth, possessions, and so forth? And what is my relationship with God? Which do I treat as the treasure and which do I treat as the tool? Do I sometimes use God as a tool, as a means to an end, 
as a means to getting some tangible thing that I want or getting out of a difficult situation that I'm in. Is God a help in times of trouble? You bet he is. But he's not just like the fire extinguisher behind glass that you leave there. And in case of emergency, go get him and he'll get you out of the situation then you can go on your way. He's not a means to your ends. He is the treasure. And on the flip side, is that the way you use your stuff? Tools to be used in service to that king. Opportunities to serve and bless and care for those around you. When I think about that idea of a clarity of focus, not having double vision, but singular focus on God and his mission, that doesn't mean tunnel vision. That doesn't mean an inability to see anything else besides him. Remember what Jesus told in the story of the Good Samaritan? It was the priest and the Levite, the super religious God stuff people, I've got serious God business to go do, who walked right past and didn't notice the dude on the side of the road bleeding out. Instead, Jesus says, no, what my kingdom looks like is people who are singularly focused on me and yet have their eyes open to the needs around them and the people that they can love and serve in my name and for my glory. Is that what motivates you? Do you see whether house, cars, education, status, possessions, tools to be used to make much of that king? That is the life that will be worth it in the end. Let me come back again to this idea. Our hearts can be trained. Whatever your heart is attached to right now that you truly treasure, it doesn't have to stay that way. The amazing hope of the gospel is that our hearts can change. They can be transformed. As a matter of fact, Jesus is giving us these words here in this sermon to lead us on that very path. Let me show you one more quote from D.A. Carson. He's talking about this idea of our hearts attaching to our treasure, and he says this, our whole lives drift relentlessly toward the spot where our treasures are stored because our hearts will take us there. It's like inevitably oriented in that direction. To follow Jesus faithfully entails, therefore, a consistent development of our deepest loves, to train ourselves to adopt unswerving loyalty to kingdom values and to delight in all that God approves. There's something radical that he's saying here, and it flies in the face of pretty much every Disney movie you and I have ever watched. We're often told by the world around us, will you tell one another, follow your heart, your heart knows the way. What you deepest value and treasure, that's truly who you are. Go for it. Jesus, on the other sense, on their hand, says, no, your heart's attached to all the wrong kind of things, but I can detangle it. I can take those wrong attachments and direct them where they're supposed to go. I love the language D.A. Carson used, a consistent development of our deepest loves, to train ourselves. You know what that sounds like to me? That sounds like discipleship. That sounds like an apprenticeship with Jesus, following him, trusting what he says, to learn from him how to be like him. So even right now, if you're convicted and thinking in your head, my treasure is all over the place, my heart is attached to all the wrong things, I don't know how to relate rightly to my stuff. Look to Jesus, watch his example. See what he values. See who he cares about. See who gets his time and attention and do likewise. Be trained by the example of your savior to love the right master. 
to value the right treasure, to have your eyes focused on him. Amen? Let me pray for us. I'm going to invite the van to come back up. Father, thank you for your word. It is humbling. It is convicting to the core. Lord, would you teach me? Would you show me? Would you show us where our hearts are wrongly attached to the things of this world? Show us instead what we ought to treasure, what has true and lasting significance. Would you train us? Holy Spirit, would you be like that eye doctor who helps and trains us to put things in proper focus, to focus our hearts, our loves on you first? Jesus, would you teach us to use what you've given to us, what you've entrusted to us as tools to make much of you? Would you give us eyes that are singularly focused on you and yet aware of our surroundings that we might see the opportunities to love and serve and sacrifice for others in your name and for your glory? Would you train us, Lord, to live in a way that demonstrates that you, God, are our Father, that Jesus is our Lord, that God's people are our true family, that your kingdom is our true citizenship. And would you glorify yourself through us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.